Welcome to church, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt Moberg, one of the leaders in this here nonprofit 501c3 that we affectionately know as the Table MPLS. We are grateful that you are showing up on this Sunday evening. Right now, we are in a series called The Last Days of Jesus. We are trying to slow our roll and actually take seriously each of the days that were the final days of Jesus, the Nazarene that we know as the Christ. Before I do, though, I'm going to um, ask for your prayers right now as I deal with this because that's abnormal. That's not fun. There goes everything that I love the most. If there's any other music stands out there, please let me know, Debbie, as soon as possible. Wink, wink, please. Thank you so much. I can't be able to put up with this still. Unbelievable, Molly. You're here, present, and you're tolerating this. Um, listen, before we get into the uh, series tonight, we say the same thing every week because it always remains true. Regardless if you pick up nothing else that we are setting out to put down for you this evening, if it's all um, hot air or just like unhelpful, I'll let you know right now, cards on the table, I say things sometimes that are unhelpful and it felt good to me, but it's not actually edifying to others. I recognize that. But we want you to hear this then. No matter who you are, not nah, time out, that's benediction, time out. <laughs> this is what we want you to walk out with. What you do is more important. Oh my gosh, heavy. <laughs> Everyone close your eyes, hold out your hands. We're about to close the service down. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. I say that every Sunday. I say it to our Timberwolves players before they hit the floor. It's so important. You know, we can get off on all these different kinds of tangents about our own kind of pontifications around who Jesus was, how, who, the historical Jesus, the reality of Jesus, all the different things that we should. Like that's the role of church. We take time aside each and every week to actually reroute our stories inside the story of Scripture. But if you don't walk out with that echo of the Christ, that eternal reminder that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are, then we failed you as a church. Our ask implicit inside of that statement is that you would take seriously the work of your soul, the work of your own personhood, the work of your own story. Mindful that you, you, you're not stepping onto a new stage every Monday morning, every Tuesday morning. You don't have to perform. You don't have to impress. You don't have to control. You don't have to twist other people's arms into like being a round of applause for you. No, 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 you're good. Matter of fact, you're asking me like right now how to sum up the, the Sermon on the Mount when it comes to the calling on your lives. I would say Jesus is trying to say that like there's nothing you need to do. You are love celebrated enough. There's nothing you need to do. Now, what do you want to do? Do you feel the difference in that? Hey, there's nothing you need to do. There's no test that's hanging over your head right now to prove whether or not you are practicing fidelity to Christ and to the way of, the, of Jesus that he's laid out for us. There's nothing you need to do. But now tell me, what do you want to do? What do you want to be about? Who you are is more important than what you do. I'm harping on that, and I'll always err on that side. We're in this series, though, the last days of Jesus, where we are trying to walk slowly. We've gone to Sunday where Jesus returned to the city of Jerusalem as like this triumphant king. Palm branches, Hosanna, all of it. It was celebratory. That same crowd, they grew a little estranged as everybody did as the days went on. Tuesday came, Jesus in the temple. 
He was flipping over tables. He was driving out the money changers. He said things that were weird. Both he was stepping on the, the toes of the powerful, but also like his disciples were kind of giving like this apple wheel of death. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, what's going on right now? We're confused. I'm looking at you and I don't know what to do with this. That was happening increasingly. Matter of fact, as we walk through the first of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, who lays out chronologically the days as Jesus last lived them, uh, he wants us to catch two like key plot lines. And the plot lines are this. He wants you to recognize that when Jesus came into the city, in the same manner that Judas Maccabeus and Judas the Galilean came into the city, both crowds for those two shouting, Hosanna, the king has finally come, Messiah. Our days are finally here. He wants you to recognize there are two different stories that are converging right now. There is one, the story of the fact that this boy wonder, this nobody from the sticks of Nazarene, he is stepping on the toes of everybody who is in power right now. Nobody is psyched about him. Actually, to the fact where the Herodians and the Pharisees are joining arms. They're going like, we, we, I know we hate each other, but like we hate this guy more. <laughs> so we might as well like hate that guy together and find some commonality in our hatred. They do that. That's evident. Mark wants to make a point of that fact right there. I want you to understand that like these two sworn enemies, their hatred detesting of this one particular individual is so strong and so deeply rooted that we're going to actually be friends. So the one story plot line that Mark is trying to map out for each and every one of us is that like Jesus is stepping on enough toes where eventually, inevitably, he's going to be arrested by the powers that be. There's another plot line though. While Jesus is stepping on the toes of everybody in power, he's also like confusing all of those he came with. <laughs> Left and right, you read the teachings outside of the space here tonight, and you see Jesus is cursing out fig trees, and the disciples are going like, what? Not even the season for that fig tree to be bearing fruit. Like, why are you, why are you mad about that? Why would it do that? He's giving teachings. The temple will be torn down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Wait a second, Jesus. We spent the past century and some trying to rebuild this temple. What do you mean you're going to rebuild this thing in three days? I don't get it. It made sense prior to when you were like, love those people over there, let's be gracious, let's be forgiving, let's take seriously the way that we live our lives. When you talk about cursing out fig trees and tearing down temples, all of a sudden it's really confusing. Two different plot lines. One, political toes being stepped on. Jesus is not like being well received with five-star Yelp reviews by the powerful at hand. But the, the people he came with, they're, they're growing more and more estranged as well. They're looking at Jesus going like, you used to say these simple things. Sometimes parables, sure. But like by and large, they were digestible. By and large, they were, you know, we could grasp them to a certain degree. But now it's just, it's a lot that you're asking. And mind you, lest we forget it, and I know that the Western culture of Christendom today has been uh, erring on the side of forgetting it. But Jesus, as the gospel presents it, the end of his life is happening at the Passover season. The end of his life is that one time in the midst of the empire that is Rome and the powers that be that are keeping people under the boot of Rome through a triple taxation system as we've addressed. 
The end of his life is happening in a time of political volatility because essentially what you have in the city of Jerusalem is Egypt, the empire, trying to celebrate next to this story. Make sense of that if you can. Egypt, the empire, the powerful that be. This is a maneuver that empires ever since have been trying to make. So all this is coming to a head. I do not want us to miss that right there as we get to Mark 14, the Wednesday, the last Wednesday of the life that is Christ. And I want to read the story with you. And I want you to be mindful of those crescendos. And then I want to dive into it in the aftermath. Join me. Right now, Mark 14, it reads like this. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, well, they were scheming. They were scheming to arrest Jesus and secretly, secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Side note, how many times have we heard that the crowds all turned on Jesus? They were laying palm branches on one day and all of a sudden the next day they were like pitchforks in hand. That's actually not accurately reflecting the Gospels. And the chief priests, the powers that be, they knew it. If we do a wrong step, a misstep, if we misjudge how we go about the capturing of this pro, like, supposed Christ, it, everything could go south. Followed up with the fact that they arrest Jesus at night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why would you arrest him at night if the crowds were in your corner? Something to think about right there that I think is worthy when we think about how the historical tradition of Christianity has carried the story of the end of life of Christ. While he was in Bethany, so while the leaders are scheming, Jesus is in Bethany and he's not like on the edge of his seat overheating in anxiety. Matter of fact, he's reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. I know you weren't crazy about your high school nickname, but how about that one right there? He's reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. In the midst of that meal, in the midst of the conversation, when everything seemed to be going the way they thought it would, there was this woman without a name who came into the scene. And she came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke that jar and poured the perfume on his head. This is not like your standard perfume. This is not Chanel number five. It's what I read today the most popular perfumes. This is not Tommy Hilfiger, which I rock seventh grade snow days dance. I doused myself in that. I thought it was the same thing as deodorant. It turned out it's not. But that's not what this is. This is pure nard from the mountains of the Himalayans. This is a, a very expensive stuff. Matter of fact, the other gospel accounts that record and they say this would be equivalent to 300 days of wages. You round it up, it's about $45,000 in today's present tense. That's what she's going with there. Um, let me pour. Uh, okay. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Obviously, when you consider the number that I just gave to you, $45,000 at least, this lady who's breaking it and pouring it all of the contents inside over the head of the Christ, it makes sense that they would have the beef that they have. Like, we're not above that, right? <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's easy to, like, read the Gospels and go, like, yeah, those idiots, man. Same time, 
like $45,000. People without means, they see means come through the, the middle of their meal and it gets dumped out on a body that will stink by the end of the next day. That's a waste. Some of those present, the disciples that were present, the, the, the Peters, the Judases, the Johns that were present, they start murmuring. They start looking at one another going like, what are we doing here? This doesn't actually make sense. Somebody make it make sense. They start saying angrily to one another, why are we like, like obviously she's welcome. We've heard the teachings of Christ. Everybody's included. Hallelujah, amen and amen. Same time, can I just ask the question, why are we wasting this perfume? Why are we waste? We are not a people of means. Why are we wasting this perfume? Matter of fact, it could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And after this question is aired by the collective voices at hand, it says they rebuked her harshly. That word rebuked in the text at hand, it speaks of something like a violent accusation, like she was like dealing with the onslaught of all these people who were not psyched about her presence nor what she was doing in the midst of them, and they just get after her. Like, what are you, you're a freak, why? Why are you wasting what could be helpful? Why are you wasting what could help us work? You say you're about the kingdom, you say you're about this work, you opened your home, you are part of it at least. What is your deal? Why are you broken? But then comes Jesus. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? You didn't catch it, but I did. She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you'll not always have me. Let me camp out on that real quick. Let me pull our sermonic car to the side of the road, just because I think it's important to know. This is not where I intend for us to go, but I think it's important. I've had many different conversations with people in power where I've, I've tried to bring about this energy of like, we should consider when we think about the well-being of our churches, also like the well-being of the poor, those who are in pain, those who have been marginalized, those who have not received their fair amount of resources that can actually equip them to experience the thriving and the flourishing that we all desire for them. And over and over again, this text has been brought to mind. This is not hyperbole. I've sat at tables where people have said to me, well, I hear your concern. And like, obviously, we do want to be mindful for those who are in pain and those who have been pushed to the sidelines. But let's just also like acknowledge that, I mean, Jesus himself said, like, the poor will always be with you. Like, this is not a problem that we are actually equipped to fix. If we fix it, Jesus would be a liar. The poor will always be with you. When they say these things, remind them of this scene. When Jesus says these things, it's not just important what he's trying to articulate. It's also important what he's going about assuming. Jesus is talking to a room full of his own personal disciples, those who have watched him walk, those who have watched him work. He is operating this underneath the assumption that if you are actually about this way, and you're going to take seriously this walk, and you're going to go about this work, you better have the poor always around you. Like that's the way this wor it works. 
My assumption is that if you take seriously that I personally, Jesus, identify with the least of these, those who are sick, those who are in prison, those who do not have the means to make tomorrow's meal secure, if you're serious about my walk and my work and my way, then yes, the poor will always be with you. Furthermore, this is a callback to Deuteronomy 15 where the, the text reads that people are always going to be in need. You are always going to be an empty hand. You're going to be offering what you can and releasing it as soon as it reaches your palms. That's the role of the church. This is not a belittling of the pain of those in poverty. This is an acknowledging that if you are a follower of Christ, you're going to be with those who are dealing with the pains of poverty. And if you're not proximate to the pains of those in poverty, ask yourself some deeper questions about how seriously you take your, your fidelity to the ways of Christ. Convicting, right? For me, convicting. Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? Since your party, sit down. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And this, is the, uh, this is one of the lines I want to camp out on right here. In the midst of Jesus responding to them, he says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body before and prepared for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Judas is in sight. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. And kind of like what is historically known as the greatest betrayals of all time. Next to like when the Verizon guy switched to the sprint team. This is about, this is it. Judas hears what Jesus says and he goes straight to the people in power the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. The next line there is he watches for the opportunity to turn him in. Judas watches. Judas is sitting at the table. He watches this woman enter in and dump out this powerful, expensive jar of perfume. Judas watches how Jesus reacts. And now Judas is watching for the opportunity to turn him in. What I would like for us to do, I guess, in this brief space we have tonight is consider the, the watching eyes of Judas. Consider this space of how we actually look at the scenes that unfold before us. Not just this one with Simon the leper in the city of Bethany, but actually all the scenes that unfold before us. If you will, close your eyes if it's comfortable, but otherwise keep them open. I want you to engage your imagination and actually be in this moment because Mark himself, the first of all of the Gospels, provides us with enough details where we should try to like engage all of our sensories. Is that the right word, Maggie? Senses, thank you. Sensories is not a word. Correction. But picture it for me. There is a meal. There's an aroma. Smoke rising up from the table. The sounds of chatter, murmuring. The sounds of bread being sliced. There is action. There is energy. There is something that is happening right here. And then in the middle of the something that is happening right here, you have this woman approach out of nowhere without a name. And she walks in. You notice her first, but shortly thereafter, you see that she's carrying this jar of expensive perfume. This is a big deal. 
the weight of the room has now shifted to this woman as she approaches the rabbi. And then she goes to him. And then she stands next to his side. And she is confident, but given the daggers being sent out by the other men from their eyes, like she also has some level of concern, but she stays the course all the same. She rips off the top of the jar. She proceeds to empty it all on the crown of the one that she believes is the Christ. And then it drips down from the top of his head, through his beard, onto his neck. And the room is stunned into silence. The room doesn't know what to make of this moment. But all of a sudden, they try to make something of this moment. There is a murmur that picks up. Disgust that gets detected. People start saying, wait a second, wait a second. Like, this isn't it. Obviously, like, you just read the text alongside of me, and we read that, like, she, Jesus saying that she's anointing me. This is a significant and, and substantial move that she is making. If that's true. I'm not trying to call Jesus' own personal opinion on the matter into question, but this is not like textbook how you go about anointing somebody. Anointing, according to Hebraic thought, and even like how we understand the word Messiah and the Greek word Christos or Christ. Literally, those two words, they, they translate in English as the oiled up one. That oil is not generic. That oil has a specific variety and flavor to it. It's olive oil. There's a way you go about anointing people that's been dated back ever since Samuel dumped the jar upon little David's head. There's a way you go about this kind of thing. This isn't it. And so the disciples, they discern what is happening in their midst and they start speaking up. First to each other. Other gospels say, though, that Judas spoke up first and it makes sense that he did. The one that was bemoaning the realities of the land. Mind you, other gospels make it clear that Judas is like the treasurer of this group. Judas is the keeper of the books. And so Judas is the first who obviously his eyes and ears perk up when he sees this girl come through with no name attached to who she is. He doesn't know what she's about, but he sees that she carries something of value. And he was the keeper of all the things that were carried as value. And so immediately Judas retrieves the pencil from his ear and he goes grabs a local napkin, and he starts charting out saying, like, okay, if she's about to make a very generous and charitable donation to our up-and-coming 501c3, then, like, I'm going to be the person who writes it all down. And as he presses pencil to the local napkin, he hears the jar being flapped off. He sees the cork, like, coming undone. He sees the oil slash perfume that's not exactly anointing oil, but it's also not just purely perfume dumped on the Christos, the Christ said, and he goes like, what are you doing? Do you know how many pop-bellied babies outside we could have fed? Do you know how many nonprofits we could have fueled? Do you know how many people that have no means could have used some means and you had these means and you wasted these means? Do you actually know what you have done in this space right here? What are you doing? Judas says. Which is ironic considering that this is the man who sells out the Christ and keeps all the money for himself. But that's kind of like what we do, right? 
This is the hermeneutic bridge I want to build real quick. Think about Judas actually having the audacity, dealing with his own hypocrisy, saying, why would you not give that money to the poor, knowing that 30 coins of silver would be in his pocket and he wasn't about to dish it out to anybody in need? In our minds, psychologists say we are always the protagonists. There is always a cape upon our back. And the moment that somebody comes into our midst that offers up a different presentation that isn't exactly congruent with the one that we see the world through, you're wrong. You're broken. You're e- what is she doing? It's a waste. And yet you read the text with me. It said, Jesus said, it's actually beautiful. It's not bad, it's beautiful. It was a good gift that she just gave to me. There was a purpose behind it. Yet Judas, and as Mark makes clear, every one of those disciples says, was it though? Felt kind of wasty to me. What we could have done. I know you guys expect, because I haven't sinned in 10 years, that you expect me to be able to resonate with the story of Jesus and not the story of Judas. But truth be told, when I read this text, I felt super convicted. Because I started thinking back on like, where have I echoed those words of Jesus? And I went back to the Super Bowl this past year. There was a commercial in particular that my mind, it set me off in a different kind of direction. Let me show you the video in case you don't remember. It's from the He Gets Us campaign. Maybe I'm foolish, maybe I'm blind Thinking I can see through this and see what's behind Got no way to prove it, so maybe I'm lying Take a look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see it clearer, or are you deceived? In what you believe? Cause I'm only human Doesn't that make you mad? Right? Not just me? Was I the only person who got infuriated by that? Because I watched that. I've been like, been like, it's been pounding upon my inbox all week long prior to the inbox by how like you need to perpetuate these commercials, you need to pass them along. And I go like, well, who is telling me these things? I know the people that are telling me these things. They are funding different things that I don't believe in. Things that I don't agree with. Things I'm not psyched about. Matter of fact, when I get to the bottom of the matter, I'm not actually concerned with the message of this. He loves those we hate. I love that kind of love. I'm all for it. My problem isn't with the message. I started getting irritated and fired up about the messengers. Those who are funding in like fiscally investing in, in homophobic like practices and policies. Those who are establishing different policies of, of cruelty, things that are completely incongruent with the way that I think we need to be about. I started seeing that commercial, I got immediately fired up. And I got angry. He gets us. How dare you? How dare you in the off time when the commercials are being aired tell me that I need to love those that I do not like when you refuse to actually do the same, legislatively or otherwise? How dare you? Angry. 
press it a little bit further and I go, okay, well, you know, not only is my beef with just the fact that they are positing a world vision that is incongruent with my own, but you guys, do you know how much money it costs to run two different ads in the Super Bowl? We could have given that money to the poor. Do you know how many like nonprofits are struggling after the pandemic? Like the things we could have done with that cash. So I go like, how dare you waste that money? I apply that logic just to the commercial, not the fact that I spent $100 on Jordan shoes. That, that's different, obviously. But then I started going to this deeper question where I go like, my problem obviously isn't with the message, it's certainly with the messengers, but I guess it asks like, can people you disagree with on very important things also be people you agree with on also important things? We, we say we're not about the black and white. Felt very black and white for me that moment. Is there space for the gray to navigate inside to say that those that we, we stand against on very important things are also those we stand with? I didn't hear it. I mean, honestly, I was like, this is garbage. Turn off your TVs. Can we put it on mute, please? But something strange happened to me where I showed up in an AA meeting three weeks after the fact where I had dialed up all this inner turmoil around these messages that I was being asked to perpetuate. And I said, this is garbage. I know what they're actually about. They're trying to like bring people in to like further empower and endorse messages that I do not believe are actually good. This guy, 64 years old, showed up next to me in the middle of an AA meeting. First time in five years. And he goes, I thought that I was beyond the work of redemption. I saw this commercial that made me wonder if I am. There are big questions you got to ask about a campaign. I'm not trying to use that as the paradigm through which we look through, but my point being is it is very easy in the midst of our immediate reactions to get reactively rebuking the people in our midst because it does not line up with the way that we think the world should be and we miss the beautiful thing that's happening. We miss the fact that some 64, he, he heard there's another chance for you, there's more space for you, that the God that you thought you were supposed to be afraid of is actually the God that gets you. And it brought him back to the seat next to me. That's not a small thing. It's a beautiful thing. Have bigger conversations. Have more critical conversations. Like the, the critiques are warranted and should be evaluated. Not a small thing. The beauty is also true. How often are we sitting on the side of the table with Judas, Peter, John, rebuking harshly, reactively so, and saying, you have nothing to contribute to this moment right here because you're not going about it the way that we think you should. You're not doing it the way the textbook says that you should. It doesn't look right. It doesn't play right. So you're gone. Garbage. I'm so tired of that in me. And we do it in the name of compassion, mind you. Which gets a little more deceptive because how many times, has anybody else in this room been spoken truth to in the name of love? You know what I'm saying? How effective has that been? Because there, there's not actually like this desire to actually speak with you. They're trying to change you, coerce you, fix you, correct you into the idea and the ideal of the converter at hand. Th love doesn't work in that way. Love intervenes in the midst of the rebuking harshly fellows and says, you're seeing it all around. Re rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. Let me recast it for you real quick. She's doing the best she can with what she has. 
She did what she could. And it's beautiful. And 2,000 years from now, people will still be telling the story of her. Because it's beautiful. I know I'm going long, so let me close it up real quick. We talked last week about us being carriers of the Imago Dei, the image of God. That means that you are chips off the old block of love, of compassion itself. Compassion and controlling, they are incongruent with one another. Compassion is saying, I'm not going to take away the dignity of your autonomy, the dignity of your being, the finding of yourself, the you trying to figure out how do I love best in this present moment right now. Compassion is not this corrective course. Compassion is saying, I see you. That's what it means to be a chip off the old block. And if you want evidence that I know that it's true, that we actually have the capability within us to actually properly add context to the people in our midst and say, I can see you are doing the best that you can with what you have and where you are. Yesterday afternoon, the sun was first out for the first time in is that a long time. And my kids had an art sale. Now, you're going to probably think they've been like creating these art pieces over the whole winter <laughs> when they're locked up in claustrophobic. That's not true. What they were doing was they were bringing like stacks of white paper out there on the street and they're drawing pictures and then selling them for about 10 bucks a pop. It's insane. You want to know what's more insane? People were buying them. <laughs> and they were loving them. And they were swooning over them. Not because the Mona Lisa was suddenly in their midst, because they had the, the ability to be able to go, I can see that where you are with what you have, you are doing the best you can, and I can see beyond what your impact is to see your intent and see what matters most. Can we do for each other what we want done for us in that way? Can we see the, the imago Dei in one another so that we can intervene like Christ once intervened and not react to the rebuke but say, this person is doing the best that they can. I don't agree with 100%. Kate, my sister-in-law right here, her and I, we don't agree with everything. We might actually. I don't know. This isn't reflective of like a beef at hand. But my point being is like, <laughs> that's not how life works. Life is complicated. People are complicated. Companies are complicated. Funding campaigns is complicated. All these different things. And so if we actually get to the place where we assume that everybody needs to be right about all the things in order for us to be in their corner, garbage. In my notes, I, had it, I wanted to say it gentlier. But no, it's garbage. <laughs> you and I were not right about all the things. You and I were not wrong about all the things. Can we give each other enough grace to see the favorable position in each of our positions, to see the best in one another and suspend our judgments and critiques because Christ did and it got him killed. And I'm willing to take that path if you are too. Will you pray with me? Christ, I don't know, God. I, I feel like that Mark 14 text, I know I rambled on, but Lord, I do feel like there's weight inside of that for today's political discourse and for today's civil, how we see one another. And so, God, I pray that we would not consult our binary teams before we figure out what's the position I'm supposed to take, but we would actually consult grace first and say, what's the position that you took? Can we have the capacity within us to recognize that each other were a hot mess, I'm a hot mess, but there is beauty still. There are stories worth telling from generations to generations. That's the good news we're after. In Christ's name, 
We all pray. Amen. I wonder if the way that Judas reacted uh, to Jesus reacting to Mary is similar to how the disciples reacted when Jesus told them that the kingdom of heaven was for everyone, and that it was for Jews and Gentiles alike. I wonder if they had a similar reaction. Are you sure? Those people, they're not doing it right. And so as we transition now to this moment where we're um, going to take communion together, I want to remind you that when you come forward and you hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you, it's as you are. They're doing the best that they can with what they have. And it's beautiful. Let this be your reminder as you walk into another week that you are seen. You are seen by Jesus who makes space for all at this table and it's open to you. You are doing the best that you can. Come and receive this, this gift, this meal. So on that night, when Jesus was gathered with his friends, he took the bread and he gave thanks to his father and he broke it. And he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he poured wine into it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. And it's for all of you. It's shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat the bread, whenever you drink the cup, remember, remember me until I come again. And so this is our way. Now in this um, next moment, while the music plays, you're welcome to come forward. We'll make one line and you can take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and hear those words, body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Would you stand with me and together we'll say the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to say, our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's not in the nurse right to tell you the truth. There was a stage where um, I was trying to tell my kids when we dropped off them for school or just like before they dipped out of the house. Like, be brave, because you are a child of God, and be kind, and so is everybody else. Be gentle with one another. I think that's really true still. And as we leave this room tonight, remembering our own value, our own worth, and the grounds upon which we stand, also remember the grounds upon which everybody else stands as well. We do me a favor, we, we, you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and hear the warmth, the is the gift that comes from the heart of God as it lands on you. Friends, no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you stayed, please know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you as is right now are a beloved child of God and beloved you belong. Go in peace. We'll see you next Sunday.